You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Let us turn then to 1 John. We're continuing our series in 1 John, and we turn this evening to 1 John chapter 3 at verse 4. This wonderful epistle that is a, an epistle letter that goes to the heart of Christian assurance. A number of passages in 1 John deal directly with the matter of assurance. We'll be seeing some of that tonight. We see the apostle go through these tests of life, as they're called, the test of right belief or right doctrine and the test of right living, of, of fighting against sin, and the test of loving others. Tonight we come to chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Let us hear God's Word. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins and in Him is no sin. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen Him or known Him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother." This is God's holy and inspired Word. Father, we pray that You would help us as we seek to understand it, as we humble ourselves and look to Your Word to speak to our hearts through Jesus Christ. Amen. It may seem odd in the end of May to refer to Christmas carols, but you know that that the title of our sermon tonight is from a familiar Christmas carol. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. And you might have noticed that some of the hymns we sang tonight referred to Satan and his power and Christ's destruction of that power. That first hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Speaking about our ancient foe seeks to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. The fact that we aren't his equal. No doubt many people hear hymns like that or at Christmas time hear God rest ye merry gentlemen playing at the mall or hear the words to it and they might even sing it. But as Dr. Rogers mentioned this morning, they don't believe a word about it. He referred this morning about the typical way that modern people wink and smirk and just kind of scoff at the idea 
of a personal being of great wickedness and, and power and evil called the devil or Satan. But Scripture is absolutely serious about the devil and his work. And here we see the devil and his work mentioned as one of the primary reasons the Son of God came. If you look at our text, you see that you can break it up into two parts, and we're going to look primarily at the second half of our text. But in just by uh, way of mentioning it, notice that in verses 4 through 6, you see almost you could break that up into three parts. Verse 4, the problem of sin. I'm not preaching on this this way, but problem of sin. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. What a great description of the nature of sin being lawlessness. That's problem of sin. And then in verse 5, but you know that He, Christ, appeared so that He might take away our sins. It talks about sin, Christ appearing to take away sins. And later on, it's going to talk about Christ appearing to destroy the devil's work. And then in verse 6, we see the result of that No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. In other words, someone that has experienced the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ in relationship to sin has a radically new relationship to sin. He no longer keeps on sinning in the old way. And then, and this is the focus of our time tonight, verses 7 through 10, we see a similar pattern pattern in this description of the reason the Son of God came to destroy Satan's work. We see in verses 7 in the beginning of verse verse 8, problem, put in a slightly different way, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. We've already seen that theme in the epistle, but it's coming out here again, and it's related to Satan and his work. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil problem. And then in verse 8, the second half of that verse, we see the solution, Jesus Christ came. The, son, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And then, similarly, in verses 9 and 10, we see the result. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. And we'll talk more about this result that we see about, again, transformed lives. But our focus is especially on verse 8, and we'll look at the others as well. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And we want to think about what that means and look at that in a number of parts here. The first point we have to address is this. What is the devil's work? Certainly there are many works of Satan, Scripture tells us about. John tells us that the devil has been sinning from the beginning Jesus healed a crippled woman whom he said Satan had kept bound for 18 long years. Peter says in a sermon in Acts chapter 10 that Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. In Hebrews chapter 2, we're told that the devil holds the power of death in some way. Of course, that's subservient to God's sovereign power over death, but there's an illusion there. There's a reference to Satan holding the power of death in some way, using the power of death, trying to use it for his end. All of these and others that we didn't refer to here then are the works of Satan in some way, sin, sickness, spiritual oppression, and bondage, and even death itself. Of course, that doesn't mean that every time someone's sick, we know that there's an 
any kind of direct correlation with satanic work. But generally speaking, these are the realm in which Satan works to accomplish his great aim. And his primary aim in all of these works, and what we might call his most fundamental work, is to lead people to hell, to bring them into eternal death and separation from God. And this is Satan's doom as well, and he knows it. He's trying to pull as many people to that same end as he himself experiences. I want you to picture in your mind the world enveloped in darkness, complete darkness. Just think of a day without the sun, without a ray of light, and think of this as the spiritual darkness in the world apart from the light of Christ. It's a result of sin and of the power of Satan, and this is the spiritual condition of the entire world apart from Jesus Christ, bound in the darkness of Satan's rule and the power of sin. In the movie, The Matrix, which I remember reading an article about a number of years ago when it came out, in which Charles Coulson talked about how it was like an extended metaphor about the darkness of this world in sin. But it's a movie that takes place in a future time, and there are these robots and machines that have now, of course, gone out of control, and they are in control of the world. And there are human beings that are kept in these kind of eggs, these great fields of some kind of, uh, they look like eggs of some kinds, and, and, and the machines harvest the, somehow the power and the energy from human beings to their own ends. And but they have to keep these human beings alive. And so, all the human beings are somehow plugged into this matrix, this computer world, that even though they aren't moving, they aren't walking around on the earth, they're just in these eggs, and they're going to be harvested for these machines, yet they think they're in a world going about their lives, doing their jobs, enjoying their lives. And the movie goes on to unfold, and someone tries to break into this world and uh, free them from this bondage. Well, that's a picture, we might say, of the kind of spiritual bondage the Bible talks about. In John chapter 5, John will go on to say, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the wicked one. Colossians chapter 1, Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Ephesians 2, Paul describes the Ephesians as having followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. And he goes on to say, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature objects of wrath. That's the picture that the Bible paints for us of the state of the world apart from the light and the work of Jesus Christ. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And so Jesus came to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, we read in Luke chapter 1. He came to a world of spiritual darkness, 
I've been following the PBS uh, series on their series, The American Experience, on the Native Americans. And they've done three or four of these uh, couple uh, series on a history of the Native Americans. And first one was in Massachusetts and New England and what happened there. And then they went on to uh, the rebellion under the, the famous Indian Tecumseh and then the, uh, the Cherokee Trail of Tears. And of course, this whole presentation is more from the Native American perspective and, and uh, Europe, those of European descent might uh, object in some ways, but it's a pretty fair presentation, I think, especially since we've gotten the European point of view for 300 years or whatever it is. But um, <clears throat> no doubt there were many injustices on both sides and uh, many things that went wrong both ways. But think, as I've watched some of those shows, I've thought about the spiritual issue here. I've thought about those Native American tribes in spiritual darkness before Europeans came, before the gospel of Jesus Christ came here. And however you want to talk about the inequities that the Europeans brought or anything like that, the fact of the matter is they were in darkness spiritually. In fact, being of German descent, I would say the same thing for the Germanic tribes, of course. Before the gospel came to the Germanic tribes, they really weren't any different than the Native American tribes, maybe different culturally and things like that in some ways, but fundamentally in darkness. That's the devil's work. Before Jesus Christ came, the whole world was lying under the dominion of the evil one, leading them to eternal destruction, leading them to spiritual destruction, leading them to hell. But secondly, we might ask this, well, how did things arrive at such a terrible state? Or we might ask it this way, how does Satan primarily carry out this terrible work? And the answer is deception. He does it by deception. He blinds people's eyes and hearts and minds. It all started with, of course, his deception of Eve and he deceived her, and then Adam disobeyed as well, and the tragic result was the fall of humankind into sin. And ever since that time, Satan's greatest aim has been to keep people blinded in sin and to enslave them even deeper in his power of darkness. Listen to how clearly Paul describes this method of Satan in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, the de devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What a summary of Satan's deceptive work. Satan blinds the minds of those who do not know Christ that they cannot see the glory of Christ. Satan in his work is he carries it out as the arch-deceiver. No wonder Jesus describes him as the father of lies. His aim, again, the eternal destruction of men's souls. His method to blind them, to deceive them, their hearts and minds, to the truth of God. Think if there were an arch-terrorist living in Lancaster. 
probably not the place that they would aim to hit, but let's just imagine it for the sake of argument. And, you know, he went to the gas station and he was living here in a motel somewhere, an apartment complex somewhere. somewhere. And <clears throat> just think, what is the purpose of his life? His purpose as an arch-terrorist would be to destroy the West, to destroy Americans in any way he could. But he would have to live by deception. He couldn't walk around and, and someone came up to him and said, well, hello, what are you doing in Lancaster? What, what brings you here? He wouldn't, he wouldn't say, well, I'm here to destroy everyone in America if I could. No, he'd have to say, make up some kind of excuse and talk about why he's here. Maybe his job brought him here or something like that. It takes deception. Well, the devil is so much more powerful and so much more crafty and so much more deceitful than any human terrorist. Satan, we're told, disguises himself as an angel of light. And he plans to deceive. He aims at spiritual destruction through deceit. Revelations chapter 12, Satan is described as the one who, quote, leads the whole world astray. Do you remember the power, the parable of the sower, where the seed sown is the word of God? And Jesus says that those along the path where the seed is sown are like the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes the word from their hearts so that they cannot believe and be saved. That's a picture of spiritual blindness and Satan's power of deception. The word of God even is sown in people's hearts and and Satan's like a bird flying in, snatching it away so that they don't come to faith. Well, we talk about Native American tribes or Germanic tribes and darkness out there. And, but you don't have to go to some heathen foreign land to see people living in spiritual darkness, bound by sin and, sin and blinded by Satan and his deceiving work. You can see it right here in your own neighborhood. You don't have to go far. And to some extent, we see it in our own hearts, don't we, when, he, when we are deceived by him in some way? You can see it in the blatant and obvious ways of people in our society with totally hedonistic lifestyles and pursuing only pleasure and partying and drinking and drugs and things like that. Well, that's maybe the most obvious way that it comes to mind in the United States. But there are also much more socially acceptable ways. I think of the college campuses and universities, uh, secular institutions, even in uh, our own state and our own community, where very typically the idea of the Bible being the Word of God and Jesus Christ as God Himself in the flesh and the only way to heaven, that whole very narrow biblical perspective will simply draw a condescending smile and a shake of the head in wonder at such outdated thinking. That's Satan's powerful deception at work, isn't it? But you don't even have to go that far to witness spiritual blindness. You can go to the person next door, the one who's been maybe a church member for all of his or her life, and the one who would actually give some right answers for catechism questions, if you might ask him or her about who Jesus Christ was, 
and the one who lives a pretty moral life to some degree, so much so that he or she is somewhat secure and proud in his righteousness. And that person would imagine that if anyone gets to heaven, well, he or she certainly should, and yet, fundamentally, they are deceived by Satan because they haven't realized the terrible plight of their souls because of the darkness of sin in their hearts, and they can't see it. Typical, good, moral, American, blind to their sin and their need for a Savior. Even church to some extent, but still blind to that reality. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. This is the devil's work. But when we think of the devil's work and his terrible deception, don't get the idea that people are somehow unwilling slaves to Satan and to sin, that he somehow leads them astray against their better judgment or against their will in some way. No, the sad fact is that mankind participates willingly and wholeheartedly in sin. Jesus said in in John chapter 3, this is the verdict Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. What an amazing statement that is. There's a very spiritually insightful scene, you might even say, in this movie about the Matrix, when the Judas character is making his evil deal to betray his friends. You see him in... in the matrix, and and he's in this make-believe world. Of course, it looks like a real world by all measure that we would make, but he's eating this five-star steak dinner in this very ritzy restaurant, and he's cutting pieces of steak and eating them and just enjoying his meal so much, and he's saying to the evil person he's with, who, again, looks like a normal man, I know this is all an illusion. I know it's not real, but I love it so much that I will sell my soul for it, is basically what he's saying. And he betrays the good guys and his friends. What an insight, but it's interesting. He's basically saying, I'll take the illusion because it gives me temporary satisfaction. Just make me powerful and rich. See, he wants to be reinserted into this matrix and live the rest of his life that way. What an insight. And it's straight from what Jesus says in John chapter 3. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Jesus Christ has come. But men love darkness. Why? Because they're dragged, kicking and screaming into it? No. They love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. It's because they love that way. Left to ourselves, there is a real sense in which we embrace the devil's lie. Satan's awful deception is what we really want. Again, left to ourselves. And what a terrible picture this is then that we have. The devil's work of spiritually leading souls to eternal destruction. This is the world into which the Son of God came. The whole world under the control of the evil one. But that leads me to our third point, and this is the encouraging point. And that is, we're told here that 
the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. What a blessed truth this is. The apostle is telling us Jesus destroyed the power of sin and he destroyed the power of Satan. What a comprehensive salvation he gives us. How did Jesus Christ do this? It says here he came to do this, but how does he do it? The Bible tells us, it flushes out, fills in for us how, how this is done. And the first aspect is Jesus established the kingdom of God on earth. At one point, the Pharisees accused Christ of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. But Jesus proves that this is not so. And he concludes with these words, But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. Jesus is saying, I am driving out demons by the power of God. And this is this is a demonstration that the kingdom of God has broken into this world. See, Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God. His mighty miracles, his healing of the sick, his casting out demons, his raising the dead were proof that the kingdom of God has come. And wherever he went, the forces of darkness were compelled to retreat. There's this very wonderful scene at the end of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, when the characters are returning to the Shire, the hobbits are going back to the Shire, and they stop by the old inn at the town of Bree, where kind of the novel began, and they see Barlaman Buttermur. What a name. I, I just love that name that Tolkien gives him. And he's this innkeeper who can't remember anything. And you just see him hurrying around, helping those who are there for a meal. But the hobbits come up to his front door, and they return, and they they have a meal there, and they say, well, you know, Bar- Barlamin, the king's men will soon be riding up and down the greenway. And you know, Barlamin, that the king is very interested in your inn. And Barlamin says, oh, what, what, what would the king, the king's far south, what, what would the king have to do with me, and what would he know of Bree and my inn? And they say, oh, he knows it very well. They draw him on like that, and then they say, well, you know, Aragorn the king is also, was known to you as Strider, this wanderer who always looked kind of disheveled and everything, but he often stayed at the end. And Barlaman just about falls off his chair. He says, Strider, the king, as if this is impossible. It could never be. But Frodo tells him, oh, yes, and soon you will see his emissaries riding up to your neck of the woods. There's going to be a new age. It was, it was the new beginning, the dawn of a new age of that novel, and, and Aragorn the king was going to be sending forth his emissaries. Well, in a similar way, Jesus Christ, even in a more powerful way, the Gospels are full of the evidence of the powerful coming of the kingdom through the person and ministry of Jesus Christ to destroy the power of sin, to destroy the power of death, to destroy Satan's work. So he came by establishing the kingdom of God, but also he utterly defeated Satan and the powers of darkness on the cross. Dr. Rogers referred to that this morning, and we hadn't compared notes about what our sermons were about. 
And we talked to each other this morning about we're covering the same ground, but that's just fine. You're getting a double dose of it here. Scripture says, and I had these notes written before Dr. Rogers preached on it, Colossians 2 verse 15, talking about Christ having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public display of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We heard Dr. Rogers preach on that this morning. This public triumphing over all of Satan's hosts. And this incredible mystery and irony that Jesus triumphed over the devil and his work in the cross. We're used to thinking that way, but think of how amazing this is. In Christ's weakness, as it were, on the cross, giving up his life, bearing shame, bearing sin, hanging on the cross. It was in that very act, as He willingly bore our sins on the cross in this great weakness, that He was actually being victorious over the devil and His work. What mystery, what irony. And we just want to say, hallelujah, what a Savior that you triumphed over Satan in this way. Jesus Christ came as a light into this sin-darkened world, and ever since then, by the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, the light has been spreading, and the kingdom of God has been advancing until we know that one day it will be brought to a glorious completion when Jesus Christ returns in glory and power. And so, I would ask you, as you reflect on this, Jesus Christ came to destroy the devil's work. Can you say that you have entered into the work of the Son of God? Have you come to the light of the world? In one sense, what we've seen here is a very pessimistic view, the world in darkness, the world under the devil's sway, but it's also very glorious because it shows forth a great Savior who has triumphed and who is a refuge for all those who would come to Him and entrust their souls to Him, and call upon Him, and ask Him for forgiveness. And the test that we find emphasized here in verses 9 and 10, and we see it in verse 6 as well, but especially we see it in regards to our text in verses 9 and 10, that the test that's emphasized here that John brings forth is a changed life. You have to ask yourself, am I truly trusting Jesus Christ? Is there some evidence of a changed life? Notice this again in verses 9 and 10. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Let's just think a little more about this emphasis of these final two verses by way of applying this to our lives. We've seen that Jesus Christ came to destroy Satan's work. And maybe some of you are wrestling with assurance. Maybe some of you don't know whether you're truly right with God or not through faith in Christ. And maybe you're wondering, does this mean that if I sin at all, that I'm not saved? No, that's not what it means. I would like just to bring three points of application home to us. One is this. Do you see and embrace the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ? If you're worried about whether you're saved or not, ask yourself, 
Do I embrace Jesus Christ and all his beauty as the gospel sets him forth? In all his sufficiency to save, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. You see, because the major focus of Satan's deception is that he blinds people to the beauty of Jesus Christ. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of God. So, do you embrace Jesus Christ or are you deceived about Jesus Christ? Have you embraced His beauty, His glory, His faithfulness, that He is a refuge from sin? There's a story that George Washington, at the end of the Revolutionary War, there was this period of time when there's a lot of uncertainty as what was going to take place in terms of the future of the United States and whether there would even be such a thing as that. Of course, there was a lot of uncertainty, and the officers under Washington were actually planning almost a rebellion against Congress. The reason? They needed a lot of back pay, and they weren't getting their pay. And they were going to take matters into their own hands and take over, kind of a military coup. They were discussing this, and there was a meeting that finally took place. I think it was in New Jersey. And uh, George Washington had this written-up speech that he was going to present to them, and he did present it to them, but it really fell flat. He wasn't known for his great oratory. He gave them this speech, didn't convince them at all. They might have had some kind of vote or something like that, and it was clear that they were still going to go ahead with their plan. So Washington stood in front of them again, and he just kind of ad-libbed it, and he was much more powerful because he just stood before them, and he basically says, I've been with you all for eight, these eight long years, and I've ruined my health with this war. My hair is all gray. I can't hardly see anymore. I've lost my sight to some extent. He just was very honest with them. And everyone were there. The officers were all deeply moved. And it wasn't really anything George Washington said by means of argumentation. He had already tried that and miserably failed. But it was more the person of George Washington and their respect for him and really just entering into, in a sense, George Washington and what he had done for the nation and how much he had done. And in a sense, I would relate it this way, that they saw the glory of George Washington, which again is only a human glory. And it changed their lives. They, they stopped their plan, and thankfully so, because it would have been very negative for the future of the United States. Well, have you embraced the beauty of Jesus Christ? Certainly a beauty that far surpasses any human glory. Secondly, if you're wrestling with assurance and you're reading this text, ask yourself this, are you at war with sin in your life? I just said that the description here does not mean that the Christian doesn't sin or doesn't have sin still dwelling in his heart. But there's this description here of a radical change in our relationship with sin. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. It doesn't mean sinlessness, but it means there's a, a new relationship to sin. And John goes on to describe that. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. What that means, we might say it this way, we are no longer at ease with our sin. We are no longer happy with our sin. We now hate our sin and mourn over our sin, but realize we don't hate it enough. 
and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are waging war against the remnants of sin. That's what new life in Christ brings. Someone who is born of God cannot go on sinning. So, brothers and sisters, it's about all-out war against sin. As John Owen, the famous British theologian, said hundreds of years ago, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. Talking about the way that sin and giving into sin leads to spiritual death in some way. Some people are uncomfortable with the war imagery in the Christian life. I'm not uncomfortable with that. The Bible is full of it. And I was raised with my father telling me World War II stories all the time, so I was used to that. But the Christian is at war with sin. Maybe an illustration that I think I've used before, but one that maybe would bring this home to you in an almost common, trite kind of way is my attitude toward weeds in my yards, in my yard. I, I know that as long as I'm alive and as I own a home, it's going to be war against weeds. And, and I'm always fighting these weeds with my, you know, roundup and other kinds of weed killer that I've got, pulling them out, of course, by hand. But there are many days that I walk right by weeds, and I don't do anything about them. I'm in a hurry to get to work, or I'm doing something else, and I say, oh, there's a weed. Ah, I've got to get that weed one of these days. Or I might even bend down and pull out the top leaves, leaves of a weed, and, and I know that, oh, the ground's real hard right now, and the root's still there. That weed will be springing up tomorrow, I know. But even that being said, even though I don't always deal with, reed, with weeds right away when I see them, it's still war against weeds. That's my mindset. And so every true Christian is always waging war with the weeds of sin that remain in his or her life. There's this new relationship to sin. It's all-out warfare against sin. And that's what John's describing here. So first of all, have you embraced Jesus Christ and the beauty and the glory of Christ? Are you waging war against remaining sin and you're not at ease in your sin? And then the third point of assurance here that I would bring to you is this. Do you know something of the power of the Holy Spirit in your battle with sin? In your desire to be like Christ and all that you're seeking to produce in terms of character of Christ-likeness, do you know something of the power of the Spirit? That's what John is speaking about here when he talks about God's seed. Notice in verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. And then he further goes on to establish what that means. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Having God's seed in us is parallel to been born of God. Someone who's born of God is born of the Spirit, is born again by the Spirit. He has the indwelling Spirit in his heart or in her heart. He has the indwelling Christ, Christ dwelling by the Spirit. That's God's seed. This passage is not about mere self-reformation, as if religion is a way to just dust yourself off and make yourself acceptable to God, and that's all God wants, us to do our best somehow, and we hope that on the last day we've done well enough and He will accept what we've done. That's not it at all. The point here is that we are under total dominion by Satan and sin 
if Jesus Christ hadn't appeared. But Jesus Christ has appeared. And so someone who's born of God through faith in Christ, that person will show the family likeness. He has God's seed. He will become more and more like God. We had our daughter and her husband and the three grandchildren over for lunch this afternoon. I'm always amazed at how you see the family likeness come out, even in the expressions. You know, I see my grandson who's for saying some things. I think, well, that's Jennifer. That's the same way Jennifer talks, and probably that's the same way the grandparents talk, too, to some extent. There's that family likeness. Well, Christians are growing into the family likeness of Christ by the power of God's seed, God's indwelling Holy Spirit. So we're no longer under the unbroken sway and deception of Satan and his work. We've been transferred into the kingdom of light. And you have to ask yourself, do I know something of that in my experience? It's not talking about just great emotional highs of some kind, although certainly emotion is part of that and is tied into it. But really, the the surest way to know it is the family likeness growing in my heart and in my life. Are there spirit-produced graces and behaviors and attitudes and words coming out of me? Is there a new love for God and for Jesus Christ? Is there a heart of praise for Him? Is there a heart lifting up to God in genuine prayer in my life? Is there that brokenness over sin and ongoing warfare against sin? If so, that's God's seed stamping God-like virtues onto our hearts, the likeness of Jesus Christ. What a work Jesus Christ came to do, to take people who are children of the devil and to turn them into children of God not only positionally by His righteousness, but also practically by making us increasingly like Him. And so we can say with the words of that great hymn, though Satan should buffet, though trials may come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed His own blood for my soul. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the work of Jesus Christ. What a work.